I'll tell everybody a little bit about what we've been up to this summer as far as studying the Word. We're in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 for the entirety of the summer, studying what's called the Sermon on the Mount. We put in a little series that we're calling the Summer on the Mount because we're taking the entire summer to take one sermon of Jesus and turn them into countless sermons of man. Uh, there's th- this, and I say that because this particular sermon, many people say, is it's the longest recorded sermon that we have of Jesus. It's probably the most profound and powerful sermon that you'll ever hear just by reading it and considering the words of Christ. And we could mine its depths for as long as we wanted to. Uh, whenever you look at the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, it's just impossible to say it all. Um, so I'm going to give my best attempt to, uh, with that uh, warning or with that precursor, to take a passage of Scripture that might be the absolute pinnacle of what it means to follow Jesus. Remember the setting. Jesus has, has just finished teaching the masses and healing, and the crowds have gathered, and there are so many people that are interested. And he sees all of the masses, and he goes to uh, this little hilltop outside the Sea of Galilee with, for a special uh, sermon just for his disciples. And really the, the thesis of the sermon are, these are the ways of my kingdom. The kingdom of God is on its way. It's, it's represented wherever Christ is and wherever those who follow him are. And he says, this is how you live in my kingdom. And we do a, a little bit of uh, recap by way of introduction because this morning we come to this portion of scripture where Jesus says, if you are worried this morning, if you come with just the weight of the world that so many of us feel for the day and age that we live in, you've read the news, you've scrolled the feed, you see all that's happening, and, and you just wonder how it's all going to work out. And for most of us, if not all of us, sometimes the circumstances of our life, instead of something that just gives us more opportunity to trust God and, and look for God's provision and his handiwork. Sometimes, circumstances, when the world gets crazy and the list of to-do gets long and the questions are many, sometimes rather than worship, we worry. And this morning we look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus say, if you're worrying, don't. In the kingdom of God, as he brings us in, Matthew chapter 6, we started this, this, this expose of this chapter, the middle of the sermon, with an amazing warning that Jesus gives. He says, don't do this. In my kingdom, beware of this. The chapter 5 is all the blessings of following Jesus, how we can be righteous by following him. And then chapter 6 starts with a warning that all of us loved hearing, I think. He says, beware of hypocrisy. And we listen to that and we're like, preach, pastor, we all disdain hypocrisy. We all dislike it when the, the, the preaching doesn't meet the practice of a church or a, 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 a so-called believer. Or even in our own lives when we feel like we're, we're not genuine in our hearts. But this morning Jesus comes with another beware, don't do this. And this one we give ourselves all sorts of wiggle room on. Today we're going to listen to another commandment of Jesus, the ways of his kingdom. He says, do not worry. And yet there's so much to worry about. In fact, as I was processing this, it's almost as though in the, 
the, the days that we live in, when you have so much to be thinking about, the state of the world, wars and rumors of wars, uh, the, the state of what it means to be healthy and how we can navigate all of the uncertainty in the, in the medical advice that we're all trying to figure out. Uh, and then in your own life with the financial questions and things that are happening in just your day-to-day family life, sometimes when you, when you represent the heart of the Lord to say, I'm not going to worry, it's almost like you feel bad for it. Like, you should be. <laughs> when you try to say to someone, hey, in, in the Lord's kingdom, by, by what it means to follow Christ, we're called to not worry. And man, do you ever feel like people think you're being insensitive when you say that? It's like, you should be worrying more, people. Well, today we're going to look at the words of Jesus as to why we shouldn't worry and why there is something about his kingdom that not only prohibits worry, but it also completely destroys it. The, the ways of Christ following him. It's not just that he outlaws worry. It's that when you really follow him, there's nothing to worry about. And so that's a, an introduction to the scripture reading this morning, starting in Matthew chapter, 20, or Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Read along with me the whole thing, because I want to share with you an outline of how we're going to go through this this morning that covers all the verses from 25 to 34. So let's just read it. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? So which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing, considering the lilies of the field, how they grow? They are neither toiling or spinning, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all of these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Ha! <sighs> Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got all the trouble that it needs. Today, people of God, you've come to worship him. You've come, I hope, with ears to hear what his word says about the blessing of following him. You've come to know him more that in his light you would see light. And yet, sometimes we leave, not as people that are assured, full of peace and trusting in God, but we leave the sanctuary, we enter into all of the the worry of this world. And so today Jesus says, in my kingdom, people actually don't have to worry. So here's the outline that I want to break down as we process 
what this is saying. First, Jesus gives some really logical and reasonable explanation as to why worry is not a good idea. And so we're going to look at that in three examples that he gives to say there are three worrisome problems to worry. Three problems that come just when worry enters into your heart and mind as a way to navigate what tomorrow holds or what baggage you have carried with you from yesterday. There are three worrisome problems that will then point us into two empowering pursuits for your life. Which means that Jesus is not asking us to leave worry and enter into a place of neutral where we are neither worrying or worshiping, but he pulls us into a relationship with him that says worry is so far gone when you do these two pursuits. And then it ends with one of the reasons that I believe this sermon means so much to so many people because it ends with a life-changing promise, a promise in Scripture that you apply to your life and you test it. And you come away with the Lord and you reason with him and you allow him to show himself faithful to answer the promise that he has provided this morning. And it will absolutely change the paradigm of your life. It has for many people this verse as we read it this morning. Uh, so many people as they preach this verse will say, this is why I'm a pastor. Uh, after service and first service, even people came up to me and said, you shared this morning the reason why I follow Jesus. There is, a, there is a power to the promise that we're going to look at this morning that should completely destroy worry. Uh, but before we do that, Jesus is first going to give us the, the practical reasons, the wor worrisome problems that will follow your life when you are not someone who is obeying the command of the Lord to not mess with it. And it starts when he says in verse 25, one simple word. He says, therefore, I say to you, which means, tr transitionally, Jesus is building everything that he's going to say about worry on top of everything that we considered last week. There is a pursuit to your life, all of us. There is, on the end of that pursuit, a reward that gets you out of bed, that gets your wallet out of your pocket, that, that gets the calendar of your life. And last week, we looked at this simple statement that Jesus says that when you find your treasure, the heart will follow. This is all built on the reward of your life. It says, choose your treasures wisely. Because treasures, the rewards that you live for, that are religious rewards or earthly rewards or materialistic rewards or rewards that have to do more with your glory than God's, have some problems to them. Uh, namely, they don't last. There is a lot to be worried about when the reward of your life has anything to do with the temporal nature of the earthly side of eternity. He says the treasures on this side of eternity will be stolen and they'll rot away due to decay of rust and they'll be eaten by moths. So when you choose a reward for the passion of your life and you dedicate your heart to something that is not part of God's eternal will for your life, there's a lot to be worried about. It goes very quickly, and it's not something you can actually grab onto. But Jesus says, when you store up yourself treasure, or when you live for the reward of God's glory and his eternal treasure, now you have something that will never perish. Now you have something that can never be taken from you. God himself is your reward in this instance. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And the God that was there in the beginning and will be there at the end, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, when he is your reward, what Jesus will say is, therefore, stop worrying. 
You've now transferred your passion and your heart to the pursuit of God, and that pursuit ends differently than any experience you have on the pursuit of earth. So it is the therefore that sets the the foundation for why Jesus can say, when that's your treasure, you need not worry. And then he gives us reason, a, a logical view with God as the sovereign creator of the universe Three practical ways to say, if worry is part of the way that you process changing circumstances, if worry is something that you're doing to try to medicate or to try to calm the the nerves of uncertainty, you should be warned because there's problems with worry. The first one, he'll point out, is found in verses 25 and 26. He says, therefore, you don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. First of all, he gives the boundaries by which this message should be applied to your life. Because all of us, in our own attempts to navigate what we should be thinking about and worrying about. And some of those like, hey, I, I don't want to worry, but you have no idea what I'm dealing with moments. He says, don't worry about your life. That's very broad. Anything that has to do with your life, your well-being, your soul, your body, your mind, the food that you consume, the provisions for your clothing and all that you have that makes you, you. Jesus says, if it's your life, don't worry. In other words, there are no circumstances by which this is not applied to your life. Paul will say to the church in Philippi, be anxious or worrisome about nothing. But in all things, through prayer and supplication, make your request with thanksgiving known to God. Paul will uh, enhance the teachings of Jesus by saying, worry goes with nothing. So all of us come now to the Lord and say, okay, uh, unreserved, Lord, tell me why worry is bad. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? One way is that Jesus wants to give us assurance for this lesson is to remove circumstance, to remove culture, to remove all of time, and to appeal to nature. When the Bible appeals to, appeal, appeals to nature, what it's saying is, this works for all of time across the board. To this day, any of us can consider the birds. And we can look out and you realize that in all of the ways our city is filled with birds and all type of variety, we don't have to step over them because they're starving to death. All of them are cared for. And the birds of all animals got a really good deal. They, they do some gathering, but for the most part, they just get taken care of. That's part of the, na- the, the creation that the, the Lord is going to say, God made his creation with built-in needs that he desires to fill. Birds are hungry. He gives them food. You have needs that are built into the way that God made you, and you're more valuable than animals. That's what Jesus is saying. So, now, here's a very important question when it comes to why you should hear the words of Jesus and not mess with worry. He's now going to ask you something. So, 
which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? Here's the first identified problem with the temptation that we have to think, if it's going to be, it's up to me, and if I can't figure it out, then I better be worried because nobody can. The first answer is, in all of your worrying, in all of your thinking about the problems of the world that you don't see a solution for, what are you actually changing? In all of your worrying about the stature of your physical body, for the young people among us who are thinking about how tall you're going to be someday, staring at the mirror and wondering and worrying that you're going to be the shortest kid in the class forever has nothing to do with how tall you're going to end up. So be free of that feeling. And if some of you feel tall, the reverse is true too. It's like nothing you can do to make yourself shorter. You have the body that God gave you. He provides food for you to eat to grow, but none of the actual production of your worry is the result that turns into anything that changes in your life. So problem number one, worry is unproductive. It doesn't work. It gives us a lot to think about and a lot to process. But one of the ways that you can filter this through your life into have I gone down the road of ungodly concern that is turned into worry, what's the fruit? Has it done anything to help your life? Because it is good to, to, to make a distinction here. What Jesus is saying is to never be concerned about anything. He's not saying that. There are some really cool, godly offices that come with responsibilities that bend your knee to prayer and search the scripture to get wisdom for. It's good to have concern as a mother for your children, as a father, as a provider for your family. It's good to have concern as to how all of these things work. But when the concern turns into paralyzing worry that produces no fruit in your life, it's gone too far. I heard one... Uh, commentators say, you don't have to worry about being concerned. But you should be concerned about being worried. So try to remember that. There's actually a way that Jesus teaches this through story form. And as you know, I always find it helpful for my own life to see this in a story. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives some insight into the mechanics of his kingdom, which he often does through story. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like this. And in Matthew chapter 25, he says in verse 14, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far off country. And he calls his servants and delivered his goods to them. So imagine the picture. There's someone who is the ruler of an estate or is his own little kingdom, and he's got servants, and he's being called off to another country for other business. And he says, before I leave, here's all the stuff that I need you to make sure does not get wasted. And there's an interesting reaction to the servants and what they do with the things they've been given. You, you may have heard of this as the parable of the talents, but it's helpful for us to see this simple point about worry here. It says this, And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability, and immediately went on his journey. This is just for the disciples, those following Jesus. This is part of being in the kingdom, is that the, the master in this scenario is, the Lord, in, in our full read of it. And he has gone to prepare a place for us in eternity that will not rot away. It's the treasure that is reserved by his hand. And as he prepares, he leaves us his spirit and says, now I need you to care for my business. I need you to be my ambassadors for my kingdom. 
And here are some gifts and talents and opportunity according to your ability or what you're good at. This is the gift of the Spirit in each one of your lives. So if you ask the Lord for the new born-again life, he says, great. Here's what I need you to do. To some he gave five, to some he gave two, to some he gave one. And look the reaction at the person who gets one talent. It says, but he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. So there's going to be in this story two examples of people who receive from the master and they do well by the gifts and the talents they were given. And then there's going to be an example of someone who doesn't do well. This person takes the little that he had and he buries it. He does nothing with the opportunity that God gave him. And there is a teaching moment that Jesus is going to describe as to the motivation in the man's heart who did nothing. And what does he say? He goes on to say this, Then he who had received the one talent came and said to the Lord upon his return, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed, and I was afraid. I was worried. I thought, man, you you gave me this stuff, but I'm just going to let you down. It better be do nothing with my life and nothing with my opportunity, nothing with my talent, because I'm afraid it's not going to work out. I'm going to disappoint I'm going to let you down. I'll disappoint others. Everyone's going to laugh at me. Everyone's going to call me a joker. You ever felt that way in the call of God on your life, the opportunity to live for him and serve him? And you're like, yeah, but in real life, it's kind of a harsh world out there. I was afraid, so I buried the talent and did nothing. One of the serious problems and why this is a command In the same breath as a warning against hypocrisy, there's a command against worry because when you become someone who takes on what belongs to God, which is to see how things are supposed to be wisely worked out beyond your understanding, and you turn it into worry, it is so paralyzing that you do nothing. How many of us have been called by God and yet we bury the talent because we're afraid it's not going to work out. So the first problem is, Worry doesn't work, literally does not work the kingdom call in your life. And it leads to believers or people who become paralyzed by fear and unproductive in their life. And Jesus is clear, when your life doesn't bear fruit, that's when the pruning comes. It's like, what do you do with a life that doesn't bear fruit? Well, in the example of this servant, the Lord answered him and said, you're a wicked servant. And he casts them away. When we meet the Lord face to face, one of the things that we will not be able to say as a defense of all all of the ways that we did not answer the call is that worry got the best of us. Because if we really knew who the Lord, the Father of creation and each one of us, if we really knew his faithfulness and his care, Jesus says there is nothing to worry about. Here's the second problem with worry. He says in verse 28, Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet, I say to you, that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, short little lifespan, and yet God cares. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
There's been times you may have read this passage of Scripture and your brain uh, interprets this, which there is an interpretation for this, as if I follow Jesus, one of the, the encouragements that I get is that I won't live in rags and be a beggar on the street for food. Because it's like, don't worry what you're going to eat. Don't worry what you're going to wear. I'll take care of your basic needs. But this reading of it also goes into another fear and worry you sometimes have that Jesus will address, which is, will my life be at all something that has any kind of beauty or enhancement to it? In, in this instance, he says that clothes could be compared to Solomon's glory. Solomon, think about that. The best reference point for these listeners to know anything about wealth and riches and, and royalty and feasting. And when you mention Solomon, you're not just talking about, you know, a shirt on your back and a nice warm meal. You're talking about feasting. You're talking about the glory of the greatest king that these people had ever heard of. And it says, even in all the glory that you can find in the buildup of the royalty on earth, God's creation is still more beautiful. The lilies are better than what you can come up with in your, in your linens and your robes. But do you believe that? Do you actually believe that following God is not simply, okay, Lord, I'm going to grip my teeth and trust that I won't starve and have to beg but the glory of Solomon doesn't compare to the God that provides for his creation. The lilies are beautiful and they come and they go and you're worth more. This next statement of Jesus is gonna bring the next problem into light because he says this. Now, if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown out, it's nothing, how much more he clothe you, listen to it, O ye of little faith. Not only is worry unproductive, but worry is unfaithful. You have been called, as we spent an entire Sunday considering, to know God not as a distant clockmaker that sets it into motion and waits for you to approach him to, to, so that he can show that he's alive, but he is a God who wants you to know him as Father. Your Heavenly Father will provide for you. But do you believe it? So what worry does is it says, I'm not so sure that God is actually going to provide. I have reason to be worried because I have lost my reason to be hopeful. Is God faithful or is he not? And I love that he uses the example of fathering because I will always be able to relate to the ways that I learned this lesson. I hope I do not exhaust all of the ways that on a 6,000 mile road trip, I had so many lessons about God with four kids strapped to a car seat for hours on end. I have a lot to draw from. I try not to exhaust it, but there's another moment I'm like, this reminds me of something. You may hear clothes and food and think first century problems were beyond that as a culture. I must fill in my worries to something much bigger because I'm a Western successful person. And it's like, really? Because at the end of the day, when you really think about it, so much of our worry and thought process has everything to do with what we eat and what we wear. 
it's, it's like, you know, you think you're over it, but then you turn on any kind of uh, television and you see the advertisements, you look at the billboards, you see all the magazine adverts, and you realize you are a product waiting to buy something if you can be motivated by worry that you're missing out on something. You give this, this food and these clothes and this fashion and this life is something you need to have, and if you don't have it, you should be worried. And I'm mindful of that on a road trip when you're hanging out with kids. It's like they are walking examples of how much people think about what they're going to eat and wear. We would, we would get in the car, we're all strapped in 20 minutes in, and you'd get the, I'm hungry, and I'm like, no. We were just at a restaurant. You're already hungry. Or you'd get, I'm cold. I need a sweater. I'm hot. Take my sweater off. Everything had to do with these little, little creatures in their bodies and how uncomfortable it all was. And I, one specific child, who will remain nameless, um, no matter what I said, no matter how I consoled her, when she said she was hungry, I did everything I could to help her see the lilies of the field. <laughs> And help her understand that birds eat, you're going to eat. And I'd tell her with logically, listen, we've got the restaurant in the map. I can tell you how many hours we're going to get there. We've got money to pay for it. It's going to be amazing. And she would look at me and say, we're not going to make it. <laughs> it's like, I don't believe you. I am so hungry. I'm this little tiny three-year-old stomach is so hungry. I don't care what you say. I'm going to die of starvation. <laughs> and that is all of us when we bring our worries to the forefront of our lives. When we allow worry to supersede worship, what we're saying to the Father is we're not going to make it. The life that you called me to is not going to be better than the life that you called me from. The treasure I left behind is going to be worth more than the treasure that awaits. And this is the story of God's people. As you study Genesis to Revelation, God will bring people into the promise of what he's doing in their life. He's told all of us that it is going to be an eternal glory that will outweigh any of these momentary afflictions. He's set us free from the slavery of sin and given us the right to be called children of the Most High God. And yet, what do we do? We relate to that moment in the story of the children of Israel. He plucks them out of slavery. He points them towards the promise. And right there in the middle, they're like, this is a bad idea. You called us to the wandering, not to bring us to where you're taking us, but to just kill us. It, we should have died in Egypt. At least then we'd get a grave. And how often are we doing that with our worry? I've actually heard it said that worry for a believer in Jesus is actually just practical atheism. And that is why worry is not part of this category of things that we're supposed to get to when we get to while we work on the real serious things like hypocrisy. Worthy, worry is saying to God, I don't trust in your sovereignty and your goodness and your faithfulness. And I don't trust that my life would be better following you. 
So when we come to the Lord with that in our hearts, it is impossible to live by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Which, when you can put worry into the camp of sin, it sounds kind of heavy-handed by the preacher, but it's actually really good news because we know what to do with it now. If it's in the camp of this ethereal thing that all of us kind of struggle with, it's like, well, good luck with it. But when you realize that it's violating your relationship with God, then all you have to say is, Lord, I repent. I, I cast my cares upon you because I am reviving my soul with the knowledge and the belief and the faith which I de- desire to increase in that you are good. That when I cast my cares upon you, you care for me. As it says in 1 Peter. Second problem is that worthy, or worship I'm sorry, worry is unfaithful. Finally, it says this. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For all of these things the Gentiles seek, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. The Father knows your needs. Your worry is not a gift of the Holy Spirit so that you can figure out what you need so you know how to ask. By faith, you believe in a sovereign God who knows your needs better than you do. And in knowing that God, you trust him regardless of what you see. Because when we live by faith, we no longer are controlled by our sight. And when you live by faith, you're no longer controlled by your sight that can only see so far and it dead ends at worry every time. And here is what Jesus will say when we become practical atheists who are not trusting God with the provisions of our life, but we're actually worrying our way through all of it. He says, you're no different than non-believers. This is what the Gentiles do. Gentiles is a word for people outside the household of God at that time. When you live your life, not at the altar of worship, but at the altar of worry, you are indistinguishable from someone who doesn't even follow me. Worry is unproductive, worry is unfaithful, and worry is unholy. Which is part of this whole message to his people. Jesus, even in pulling his disciples as the main audience for this, is going to tell them the kingdom of God really is about... Holiness, to be receiving the light of God so that you can be the light, to be separate from the world, to be shining in the dark, to be a city that's on a hill. All of those are ways that we represent the God and the kingdom that we belong to that is different than anything you'll find in this world. And when we worry, we've lost that testimony. We're we're now no longer different than anyone in this world. And again, we we have to remember the context of this because this is not simply the day-to-day worry about wars and rumors of wars. This is a worry that has to do with the treasure of your life. You cannot serve God and mammon, earthly possessions, earthly wealth, earthly wealth. Sometimes our, our worry turns us into people that really allow materialism and, and what we wear and what we eat to to be something that gives us an assurance that it was never meant to give. And we were totally unset up, we're totally not set apart in the way that we view what we need in our lives. 
what we need to wear, what we need to eat, where we, where we get all of these provisions from. And just like hypocrisy came with a message, when the people of God do this, when we are more interested in religious theater than actually genuinely knowing God, one of the messages, it causes the non-believing world to blaspheme. We see that in Romans chapter 2, when he says, those of you who teach all of these things, do you do them? And if you don't, you, in your hypocrisy, cause others to really lose their own view of God. Well, worry has the same problem. Worry has the same potential to allow us, because we're more concerned with material things in our lives than we are with the God who is setting up eternity for us. The outside world looks into that and they say, not interested. One of the ways that we see that with culture and what we wear and what we put on is there's a popular, growing in popularity, probably for this reason, there's a popular Instagram feed called Pastors and Sneakers or Sneakers, Pastors, Pastors and Sneakers, something like that. And it's all about how the representatives of the kingdom of God who are preaching and teaching and doing worship, how they love to look good. They love it. And we all kind of, we have those moments where we love it. And so this particular account will, will follow everything they're wearing and put a little price tag to it so that the whole world can see how much money is going on the feet and the backs of all of these people who claim to be living by faith. And you know what people think? Keep it. I don't need it. I got materialism in my own kingdom. I got the earthly treasures on lock. I don't need to go to church to figure out what kind of shoes I need to wear. That's why I've got a little sensor on my shoes so no one knows. It's like just this black sensor. I'm barefoot right now. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, the whole point is, what makes this kingdom something that is better than the world? And one of them is, Jesus says, when you follow me, you no longer have to keep up with all of the standards of what you need to eat and wear and do to show that your life has material value. The Gentiles do all that stuff, not my people. And so you have very practically worry, unproductive, unfaithful, unholy. Jesus says, don't do it. But now we have two empowering pursuits that take us just from rejecting worry and into a life that allows God to cleanse us from all this stuff. He says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Three worrisome problems to turn into two empowering pursuits for your life to engage with God and what he's calling you to do in a way that will allow you to trust him. Allow you to believe in his goodness. Seek first his kingdom. That tiny filter for your life to put his kingdom at the priority of your morning, to put his kingdom values as the measurement of your life and your well-being and your, the health of your soul, Jesus says is part of the answer to overcome all of the ways this world wants to pull you into worry. Be kingdom-minded. Think about what it means to honor me and be valued in my sight. We shared a little bit last week about the Olympics that are happening. The final ceremony was the other day, maybe last night. So they're over now. But what an interesting moment for us to really consider human nature. There is absolutely something so glorious about reaching the top of the mountain. In, in any field, by the way, in, in your own pursuits, there is a mountain that awaits whatever title you hold. But the Olympics remind us of the glory that can be found on this side of eternity to spend 
four years or longer of your life dedicated, sacrificing, doing anything to be at the top of the mountain and to get the gold medal is part of the seeking of treasure. And yet when you watch the Olympics, you get this really awesome kingdom reminder that there are kingdom people. That just like there are Americans representing the American flag, God has sent his people to the Olympics as well. And they represent not only a patriotic value, but they also represent the priority by which we actually live. Because the kingdom people there will tell anyone who will listen, at the very top of the mountain of my sport, as the gold medal hangs from my neck, I actually live for something greater. This is a beautiful picture of what it means to seek the kingdom in your own context. Wherever your pursuits on this side of eternity lead you, and there is a gold medal version for your life, there is something that will never supersede the kingdom of God for his people. I get a picture of that in one of my favorite events that unfolded. It was the women track and field, specifically one runner named Sydney McLaughlin. I don't know if you've watched her, but it's like, I watch her run, and it's like, this is, this is amazing. It's just the athleticism. And she, at 22 years old now, won Olympic gold in the 400-meter hurdle. And it was just YouTube, and it was so beautiful to watch and the competition and the buildup of it. And she is at the top of the mountain at a young age. She's a rich, young ruler now. And yet, look what she says of her achievement. Records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. There's something that she can do in this world that has an amazing uh, earthly reward. But there is a reward that she lives for now that is superseding all of it. She seeks first the kingdom no matter what this earth throws at her. Jesus says, you do that, you've got nothing to worry about. Look what she goes on to say. I don't deserve anything, but by grace through faith, Jesus has given me everything. Seek first the kingdom of God, one, and his righteousness. By grace you have been saved. Not of works, lest you would boast. And wherever there is boasting, wherever there is a life lived for a world record on earth, there is worry. Records come and go. Boasting only lasts so long before someone now is better than you. When you live the life that is freely given to you by grace apart from your own righteousness, you are freed from worry. There is no condemnation in Christ. The, the, the works of the law that could condemn you have been conquered by Christ, and we don't have to take part in religious theater because now we freely receive like a child receives from the Father. When you shift your religious pursuits to an aim of self-righteousness and earthly treasure to the kingdom and his righteousness, you are freed from all of the ways that worry will try to enslave you. You don't have to worry because you're a new creation. He who knew no sin became sin so that you would become righteousness, not of your own. These two pursuits of your life will free you and destroy the enemy of worry that can so easily ensnare you to make you an unproductive, an unfaithful, 
and an ungodly person. And yet when you do these things in your life, when your day becomes a daily pursuit of the kingdom, your relationships are filtered through the light of Jesus' gospel in you, you're set free and you are productive. You're no longer unproductive. Now you have the freedom to follow the Lord wherever he leads, serving him as a servant serves the master. And as we go back to Matthew chapter 25, what happens to the five-talent guy? Here's what I did, Lord. It's all yours. Here it is. He gives it back. And then he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. Here's even more. Are you being faithful with what God has given you? no longer paralyzed by worry. And you will be set apart as you seek first the kingdom. You will be a light on the Olympic stage of this world. It says in 1 Peter that we're to sanctify the Lord in our hearts, always ready to give a defense of the hope that is within us. That's what it means to live in the kingdom. That as the world continually goes through the pains of the wrath of sin, the poor decisions of turning their back on God, the challenge of navigating life without the sovereignty of God, there is a people, a remnant of God, who do things differently than the pagans and Gentiles, who have a hope that is living a light inside of you that will give glory to God. And that brings us to one life-changing promise. There are so many people who have read this moment and said, I just want to see if this is true. Change their life. As you read the commentaries, as I read the commentaries, countless times writers would reference this verse as the reason that they got into ministry people referencing this promise as the reason they decided to follow Jesus. And here it is. He says, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all things will be added unto you. So I want you to think about how far we've come from last week. Last week, it was like, there's a fork in the road. There are earthly treasures and there are heavenly treasures. Jesus says, don't choose the ones that are fading away. Choose that that is eternal. But now we come to this morning. And we realize you never had to choose at all. Because if you follow this principle in your life, what Jesus is saying is, you get it all anyway. You're not choosing to forego something good that God has for you, that you were made to enjoy by part of his design. Because it qualifies as earthly and not kingdom. This principle should change your life. There is nothing that you could treasure outside of the kingdom. No wealth, no relationship, no passion for your life. There's nothing you can treasure outside the kingdom that is not better inside the kingdom. There's no treasure you leave that you don't somehow enjoy with life and life more abundant under the sovereignty of God's faithfulness in your life. Last week, we looked at this moment as told through the story of the rich young ruler. And we, we ended the story before you should ever end it. So I'm glad that you're back if you were here last week. And we ended with it as a man throws himself at Jesus and says, what must I do to get eternal life? 
Jesus says, sell everything you have. Store up yourselves treasures in heaven by giving it to the poor and follow me. And what happens? Well, last week we looked as far as him saying, can't do it. He walked away sorrowful. Jesus will then go on to say how hard it is for anyone who loves riches to enter into the kingdom of God. But it's not impossible. What's impossible for man is possible by God. He'll save anyone. And he'll redirect the perspective that they have for earthly treasures to be kingdom treasures. And there's an interesting moment where Peter, hearing all of this and watching the interaction that just happened between Jesus and this young man, Peter stands up and says, Lord, we left everything to follow you. What what happens now? Well, hopefully you're asking that question. I have listened to the, the words of the Lord And I will do anything to have the eternal treasure. So what happens now? Well, this is what Jesus says. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children with lands with persecution now and in the age to come. Jesus says it's with persecution. It's still on this side of eternity. We're not being called into mansions and comfort now. But what we are being called to live boldly in the kingdom of God, knowing that when we fall under the banner of his grace, we have everything that we need. There's no relationship we leave. There's no job that we have to redetermine that is not found now in our kingdom calling with an enhancement on your life. The family of God awaits the call of God, the promises of God, the truth of God. You seek that and God adds everything to your life. Joy, goodness, satisfaction. C.S. Lewis says it better than I ever can, so I'll just leave you with this. C.S. Lewis says, when you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. When you become committed to the kingdom call on your life, God doesn't just provide for you. He gives you more life. When you live for notoriety and fame and earthly possession, in the end, your soul is required of you and whose will those things belong to now? We have three worrisome problems where he leaves you unproductive and unfaithful and unholy. And yet, when you seek first the kingdom of God, you have two pursuits for your life, the kingdom and Christ, his righteousness, and God will add everything to you. When I first got into ministry, someone told me, see if this first becomes true in your life. And that's how I got here. I'm so blessed because God gave me the grace to follow him. And he added everything I could have ever imagined. And I'm just one of all of the ways that God's faithfulness is on display in our lives. And I just say that because I would love to give you, if you've never followed Jesus, the same invitation. Find out if this verse could be true in your life.